Henry Nouwen was a professor at Harvard. He was a pro prolific pastoral theologian and scholar and writer and speaker. And then to many people's amazement in 1986, he left his professorship in order to pastor a small Christian community in Toronto that comprised of persons with disabilities and those that were caring for them or assisting them. When Nowen arrived, his very first caregiving assignment was to spend every morning with a 25-year-old man named Adam Arnett. Adam uh, was a man with profound disabilities. He was mute, uh, he had uh, severe epilepsy, uh, and he was physically disabled. And for several hours every morning, Henry would go to him and have to wake him and then bathe him and shave him and dress him, prepare breakfast and feed him, and, and then finally bring him uh, to uh, his day program. And during the early weeks and months as Henry Nowen was taking care of Adam, uh, he was utterly afraid. He had uh, no idea how he got into what he was doing. And, and he would ask himself and others, he said, what if he falls, what do I do? Uh, what if I make the bath water too hot or too cold? He can't tell me. What if I cut him while, he, while I'm shaving him? What do I do? What if he has a seizure? I'm not trained for this. I have no idea what to do. And Henry, during these early weeks and months, kept on thinking to himself, why on earth did I leave Harvard? Why, God, have you asked me to do this? Why, what was I thinking when I said yes? And why has this community asked me the least trained and the least capable to take care of this man who within our community has the greatest amount of burdens. And I think when we see, uh, when we see heavy burdens that are laden on other people, most of us, if we've been around the teachings of Jesus even for a little bit of time, or even if we haven't, most of us instinctively know that we're supposed to help. The law of Christ, if you look in Galatians 6, verse 2, the law of Christ refers to the law of love. The law of love. Just as Jesus taught in John 13, 34, a new commandment or a new law I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. So the problem being addressed in Galatians chapter 6 and verses 1 through 4, five is not if we should bear one another's burdens. Most of us already know that that's in fact surely the case. The problem that the Apostle Paul is addressing in this passage is not if, but how. How do we bear one another's burdens? Uh, when Paul refers to burdens, I think it's important to understand, and I think this is an interpretive key to these uh, these verses, there's actually burdens has two subcategories that Paul has in mind. In verse 1, the burdens that Paul is referencing is those who are caught in a transgression, a sin, in which they have volitionally given themselves over to a sin, and Paul calls it a burden. 
But then in verse 2, he seems to be using a, a broader understanding uh, of, of burden in which it's an involuntary affliction in which the person has fallen. It's a weight, that, an oppressive weight that has fallen on them. And it's a result of the fall. And that's why Paul can refer to both as burdens because as a resulting of the fall, we have transgressions. And as a resulting of the fall, we also have a severe uh, afflictions such as Adam's physical disability. And like Nowen, most of us instinctively want to help, but we're scared and we're afraid and we honestly, we just don't know how. And so Paul is, in this passage, I suggest to you, is offering uh, several considerations on how we can bear one another's burdens. And I'd uh, uh, point out three uh, for us to consider tonight. So how do you bear one another's burdens? Well, first, you must keep watch. You must keep watch. Look at verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And then he says, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. And the reason why Paul is saying this is because when we're helping or helping someone bear a burden, the one who is helping is going to come under temptation. And what is the temptation? Well, verse 1, he says, keep watch on yourself. In verse 3, he warns us, for if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. In verse 4, he says, let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. So Paul is giving this warning that if you're coming alongside and helping someone bear their burden, you're going to be tempted. Well, how? How will you be tempted? Well, let's think about this for a moment. If you come along someone who has been caught in a transgression, one of the key temptations that many of us will experience or feel is the temptation to judge. And that's because it's likely our judgment of that person's falling into transgression is because we covertly struggle with the very same issue. In fact, Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 1, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. So you find her bossiness totally unacceptable. But that's because you're just a little bit bossy and her bossiness is rubbing against your bossiness. You, you find his manipulative tactics, tactics intolerable. But that's because it's exposing and making you have to look at your own ways of manipulating. And you're judging the other, but it's really something that's going on inside of you. Or let's consider when you're coming along someone and helping bear their burdens under a physical or some type of life affliction. The temptation in this case is often to pride. Pride and taking advantage of the person in their weakness and trying to receive some personal advantage. Oftentimes when you come alongside someone who's in a physical affliction, what do people say to you? 
oh, that's so amazing that you're doing that. Oh, you're, you're really, whether they say it exactly like, like this, this is what they mean, you're so special. I'm amazed. I wish I were like you. I wish I could do what you were doing. And we hear this, and it tends to puff us up. And it can tend to motivate us in such a way that we begin to do those good things and bearing the other person's burdens, not out of pure love for that person, but because of the people coming around us, uh, lifting us up and puffing us up. Or we begin to fall into the indulgence of the power dynamics that exist between the one who is helping, who is in strength, coming alongside the one who is in their weakness. And you begin to take advantage of their weakness. You, even, you will never say it out loud, most likely, but you think it in your heart. You think to yourself, I'm doing all this for you. You owe this to me. But that's pride. It's pride to take advantage of the person in their weakness. And it's certainly pride to do it out of the motivation to get esteem from other people. Paul warns us in Romans 15, verse 1, he says... We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. So when bearing the burdens of the weak, the strong must vigilantly keep watch. Keep watch on yourself. Watch yourself. Well, how do you keep watch? Paul doesn't tell us. But many others have come along and given advice and counsel on what it means uh, to keep watch. One of those from the 15th century, if you've been in the LDI groups, you know you've been receiving some of the devotionals, is from Thomas Kempis in his Imitation of Christ. And there he's speaking from another time, in another age, in another culture. He gives warning, and this is one of the things he says. He says, watch over yourself, arouse yourself, warn yourself, and regardless of what becomes of others, do not neglect your soul. And Akempis goes on to, to give instruction that keeping watch must uh, be systematic and it must be daily. And of course, there's many ways to keep watch. One particular way that I would uh, recommend to you comes out of Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. Many of you might know that, that passage, the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. This long list of nine fruits of the Spirit are not just there for us to read and pass over, but we can take these and systematically analyze and look at our life prayerfully before the Lord and ask ourselves, am I living, in what ways am I living into these fruits of the Spirit? Akempis recommends that at the beginning of the day, you take the fruits of the Spirit and you pray over each one, asking the Lord to help you to live into and to have this love, this joy, this peace, this patience, this kindness, and so on. And you anticipate the conversations or the place where you are, where you're going to be at work or uh, when you're going on that play date at the playground or whatever it is that you're going to be doing that day. You're anticipating and praying into these particular fruits that they might become more part of you. 
You pray at the beginning of the day. And then at the end of the day, you do an assessment. You examine yourself. That's what Paul says in verse 4. Test your own work, he says. So at the end of the day, you say and you ask yourself, Lord, where did I have love or where did I express hate? Have I had joy or was I just grumbling? And you go through your day and you analyze yourself prayerfully before the Lord. And where there's victory, you give thanks. And where you have fallen short, you pray, you confess, and you pray for help. When you see the good victory, you know it's not you. And so you do what Paul says in verse 4. His reason to boast when you see the victory that the Spirit has given you in this particular Sunday, at the end of the day, his reason to boast will be in himself alone. Now, Paul is not saying that you're boasting in your own self-strength. He's saying that your boast is what, in what the Spirit has done in your life, even that very day. You give thanks, and you continue to repeat day after day. That's the systematic daily approach. But then, of course, we all fall short. Today, at the end of the day, if you, before you fall asleep, if you go through the fruits of the Spirit and you ask yourself, did I, did I have peace? Was I gentle? Was I good? Was, did I exhibit self-control? And at each place where you have fallen short, you recognize it, you confess it, and then you pray into it asking the Lord to change you in this place. Not generic prayers, but very particular prayers. And you do this over and over and over if you want to grow in the Lord. This is how you keep watch over yourself. It's this and many other kinds of practices. But that's the basic pattern. Are you doing that? This is something you need to do. If you want to grow in the Lord, you have to be systematically and regularly looking at your life, laying yourself down and allowing the Holy Spirit to work. And if you're, if you're coming alongside someone and bearing their burdens, you're going to be tempted. So you better do this. You need to do this. Well, how do you bear one another's burdens? Well, first, we keep watch. But then second, we restore gently. Look at verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Part of, part of bearing one another's burdens is, verse 1, restoring a person who is caught in sin. Now, of course, this is really delicate work and you don't want to bring a butcher's cleaver, but a surgeon's knife. And it's given to those who are spiritual, specifically. It's not a pastor or someone with a title within the church. It's given to those who are spiritual. Those who are spiritual are those who are listening to and who have lives that are being shaped by the Holy Spirit. That's how the New Testament is, uses the word spiritual. It's the the work of the Spirit within one's life. And so we need the Spirit to do this work, but we fall short in many ways. The particular way that Paul really wants to draw our attention and bring restoration to one who has fallen into transgression is having a lack of gentleness. A lack of gentleness. If you're going to go to someone who has fallen caught in a transgression, you have to have a spirit of gentleness in your life. If the restorer comes along and expresses anger, oozes just a little bit of frustration, speaks inaccurate or 
uh, untimely or dismissive words to the person, you'll automatically undermine the goal of trying to restore. And if you come along with such harshness rather than gentleness, you have to ask the question, was your motivation really to restore or was it to injure? And Paul, you see, in this passage of verses 1 through 5, he's, he's trying to cultivate within us a spirit of gentleness. So look what he does in, this, in these verses. In verse 1, he says he begins with the word brothers or brothers and sisters. You see, the, the person who has fallen into transgression is not a, a problem to solve. It's your brother. This is your sister. This is a family relationship. You have to approach the person in that way. In verse 2, he uses another term, one another. This is a term of mutuality and of mutual affection, which Paul is using the very same word that Jesus used in, about the new commandment in John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. It's this, this idea of mutuality and affection. And then he goes on in verse 1, and notice how he describes sin. It's a very particular way. He says, he describes the person as caught in any transgression. So rather than focusing on and describing sin as some willful disobedience in this section, he's reminding us that the person that you're trying to restore is caught. They're entrapped. In Ephesians 4, he calls sin done in ignorance. There's, a, there, there's something in which the person does not realize completely what they're doing. That's part of the reason why they do it. Father, forgive them. They knew, do not know what they do. In Proverbs 17, 23, the proverb says that sin is like a bird that rushes into a net, not realizing the bird that it's going to lose its very life. And so Paul wants us to remember that the person is caught and they're probably afraid and they need help. This your brother, this your sister is not a malicious monster. They're trapped. And we need to remember that but by the grace of God, you and me would, be, would have fallen into the exact same trap. And so the restoration process must be done in this spirit of gentleness. Now that's not to deny sin or to negate the importance of discipline within the church. But, gen uh, but gentleness keeps the goal at the center. And what's the goal? The goal is restoration of my brother and of my sister. Gentleness, when you're going to someone who's been caught in a transgression, gentleness recognizes the vulnerability of my brother or sister in the place that they are in. And you're deeply aware. And you're very sensitive to that person's feelings and viewpoint. You're keeping it in the forefront of your mind. Gentleness uses kind words with a kind tone even if that person, as you're going to them, is getting agitated or angry with you. And gentleness expresses itself by the gift through the gift of time. You give full attention, full presence. You're not trying to rush. You can't rush. 
this sort of work. And if you make a mistake, gentleness owns the mistake. And let's face it, when we go to try to restore someone, if you've tried to be in that, if you've been in that position, you know how easy it is to misstep and to harm the person and even sin yourself. Perhaps not intentionally, but it's, there it is. Gentleness owns the mistake, apologizes, says, I did it wrong. I, I, that's not the word I meant. I'm so sorry for using that word. Forgive me. And you, you don't let the process become the subject, but you bring it back. And so gentleness is critical and key. And I guess I should also say that gentleness does not use texts or emails to communicate tough things. A spirit of gentleness is also how we care for those who are burdened, not just with afflictions, but burdened, or, I'm sorry, not with just the, the transgressions, but burdened with afflictions. Gentleness counts the afflicted person as more important than yourself. That's the, that's the very heart of gentleness. Gentleness is not a technique. It's a, it's a spirit. It's a heart. And the heart of it is humility. And that this person who is caught in that transgression or this one who is overloaded with the afflictions of life is actually more important than me. And that's the hard attitude that you bring to that person. And not only that, but gentleness sees the tender gift that's present within this person in front of you who is deeply afflicted, including those with physical and mental disabilities. The spirit of gentleness is the work of the spirit. It's not technique. It's received by grace. And so you have to pray for it. You have to ask the Lord to do such a work in you. And I would have to, as I look at my own life, I would say that I really need prayer and appreciate your prayer that my spirit would become more gentle. I know as I look at myself, I'm I'm too direct, and I'm too abrasive, and I need, as a pastor in this work, to become more gentle. So you can pray for me, but I imagine that I'm not the only one, and that you too, you too need to pray for this gift of the fruit of the Spirit to grow in your life. Well, how do you bear one another's burdens? First, we have to keep watch over ourselves because you're going to be tempted. So you better do the work as you go alongside someone who has a big burden. But then secondly, Apostle Paul is calling us into a spirit of gentleness. We restore gently. But then finally, we take action. To bear one another's burdens, how do we do so? We take action. Look at verse 2. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. To fulfill the law of Christ, that is the law of love. Love takes action. Love doesn't sit down. Love doesn't look the other way. Love takes action when it sees the burden. Christ himself, in Matthew 8, 17, uses the same word. Christ himself bears our illness. And he does it by taking action on the cross, the spiritual illness. He bears it upon himself in, uh, in order to give us his own help. And of course, he calls each one of us to, again, in faith, to look at Christ, to call upon him 
as our sin bearer. He has borne your sin upon the cross and he wants to give you health. Have you done that? Have you given him your faith? Given him your life as Lord and as Savior? Christ alone is the sin bearer. Christ alone is the one and only who can bear sin. Nevertheless, each one of us, though we can't bear sin, we surely can bear at least some of the consequences of the sins that, uh, that have fallen upon those around us. There are many examples, I'll just give two. I've seen uh, multiple people as a pastor who have been caught in substance abuse. And others, even within our congregation, who with enormous sacrifice and with very timely, wise counsel, lead that person under substance abuse into a much better place of submitted to the Lord and freed in a life-changing direction. That person's sacrifice was bearing some of that transgression, bringing freedom uh, upon uh, those dealing with that, uh, with that struggle. I've known uh, multiple people uh, within our congregation weighed down in credit card debt, accumulated not at least entirely based on innocent decisions. And I've watched others come alongside those who are under this heavy load that causes a lot of anxiety and without the means to get out and to come along and provide the financial counsel needed. And in, in a few instances, even helping pay down or uh, removing the debt completely. So wonderful examples. And there are many others. Because bearing one another's burdens requires that you take action. You do something. If a bird is caught in a net, you don't point the perils of the net. You lift it up and you free the bird. You act. Taking action either in regards to one caught in a transgression or one under uh, the afflictions of life, under these burdens, is a responsibility that falls not upon a few, but upon every member of the community. Because we're all called to grow in the spirit, to become increasingly spiritual. And we're even so also all called to bear one another's burdens, to act. I think Paul makes this point in what looks like a contradiction in our, in our passage. If you look at verse 2, he says, bear one another's burdens. But then in verse 5, he says, each will have to bear his own load. Well, which one is it? Do you have the responsibility to carry the other person's burdens? Or are you supposed to carry your own? Well, perhaps a simple illustration will help us unpack what is not really a contradiction. Imagine people uh, who have to go on a long journey and perhaps up a high mountain. And uh, each person has been given a backpack that they have to carry uh, along the journey. One person is given uh, 50 pounds to carry in their pack. But that person actually has strength to carry 60 pounds. And then there's another person who has only 25 pounds in their backpack, 
but they've actually been given great strength, and if they had 100 pounds in their pack, they could easily do it. And then there's another person who has 90 pounds in their pack, the most out of all, all of them, and yet they only have strength to carry five pounds. Well, how does it all work? Well, I know you probably couldn't keep track of all the numbers as I just laid them out, uh, but if you write down the, the numbers, you'll see that in the illustration, there's enough community strength that's been distributed to all to carry all the burdens and so that everyone will reach the journey's end. Uh, but not only that, in verse 5, to bear your own load, it refers, Paul is referring to the responsibility to carry the weight proportional, not to the burden, you're responsible to carry the weight according to the strength that has been given to you. So what does that mean? It means that some of you right now are holding a burden, a very heavy burden, that God has given you, but not with the intention that you have to carry it. He's given you this challenge, this affliction, but he wants you to humbly allow others with your transparency and with your requests to come alongside you and to help you carry it because it's not your burden to bear there's someone around you who perhaps doesn't even know that you have it who has been tasked with this responsibility to help and you have to let them but it also means that there are some here that have been given the responsibility because you have extraordinary capacities and resources and strengths. And God did not give it to you for you to use just for yourself. In his grace, there's plenty for you. But it's actually intended for you to use on behalf of the others who need your help and to take action. But then what about the person in this illustration who has been given the greatest burden but the least amount of strength. How do they fulfill verse 2, bearing one another's burdens? Is Paul leaving them out? Well, I think actually the, the answer is in verse 3. Paul implies that answer when he says that we're easily deceived. Who we think is something is likely nothing. And the ones who we count as nothing, they might be the most powerful of all. That's what Henry Nouwen discovered in his relationship with Adam Arnett. Henry was a professional speaker. Adam could not speak a word. Henry was a doer. Adam could not walk, he could not bathe, he could not dress, he could not feed himself. Henry had a vivacious personality and a, and, a, and a wonderful smile. Adam dealt with daily exhausting seizures, one of which led him to fall and for his two front teeth to be pushed up into his gums and he had, they had to be removed. Adam, di Adam didn't have a vivacious smile. 
But during the years where Henry Nowen was caring for Adam, Henry discovered that he was not carrying Adam's burdens, but that all along, Adam had been carrying his. Nowen writes, while at first it seemed quite obvious who was handicapped and who was not, living together day in and day out made the boundaries far less clear. You see, Henry, as he spent time with Adam day in and day out, he began to see how impatient and demanding and ambitious and how full of anxieties he really was. By contrast, everyone who knew Adam, and there had been hundreds of people who lived in, with Adam and helped take care of him during the 10 years that he lived in that community. Everyone who knew him said Adam was long-suffering and gentle and humble and who had a life that was full of peace. Yeah, of course, Nowen did come along and he helped Adam bear some of his physical burdens. But it was Adam who helped carry Henry Nowen to find and to discover the love of God that he had been searching for and, and part of the reason why he left his position and was in search to discover God's wonderful love for him. He saw that love active in Adam's life. And it was by caring for him that he began to rediscover it. You wonder how? Well, you have to read the book. It's called Adam, God's Beloved. It's a wonderful book and worth reading. At the age of 36 in 1996, Adam died. And this prompted Nowen to write this book, uh, it was, in fact, his very last book because he was only to die a few months later. But this is what he said about Adam at his funeral. He said, here is the man who more than anyone connected me with my inner life, my inner self, my community, and my God. Here is the man I was asked to care for, but who took me into his life and into his heart in such an incredibly deep way. This is my teacher, my friend, my guide, who could never say a word to me, but taught me more than any book or professor or spiritual director ever could. Here's Adam, my beloved friend, the most vulnerable person I've ever known, but at the same time, the most strong and most powerful man I've ever met. And we all learn from the examples of Adam and of Henry. May we each bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Oh, Lord, help us. Give us the grace that we need for your glory and our joy. We look to you. We wait on you. We believe you. Help us in our unbelief. Transform our lives for your glory and receive our worship. Amen.